You're listening to TIP. You know, there's great irony. If you, if you get money right and you begin building your FU money and ultimately become financially independent, you really don't have to think about money all that much, especially if you're on the simple path to wealth because your investments are really simple and they're automated. If you don't get money right and you're spending every dime that comes to you on stuff and you're living paycheck to paycheck, well, then you're, you have to think about money all the time and in the most negative possible framework. In this episode, I chat with JL Collins about the adaptability of the term financial independence, how to reframe savings to make it more attractive, why simple is better for the investing process, why it's so important to minimize fees, why you should stay away from overly complicated financial products, why he doesn't like real estate as an investment, and a whole lot more. JL Collins is one of the few people in the personal finance industry I think is worth following. He has a no-nonsense, simple, and highly effective method for building wealth. The genesis of his system was created out of necessity to teach his daughter how to build wealth. Once he realized other people might also find value in his teachings, he shared it with the world, and here he is today. I really enjoyed learning more about JL because he's created a very useful system that anybody can learn and adopt. As his latest book, Pathfinders, has shown, truly anybody can educate themselves on how to become financially independent if they are willing to learn. Whether you're a migrant farmer or someone displaced by war, you can achieve financial independence using JL's very simple system. If you've had problems saving in the past, want to save for the future, and want to know where to put your savings, give this episode a listen. You won't be disappointed. Now, without further delay, let's jump right into this week's episode with JL Collins. Celebrating 10 years, you are listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network. Since 2014, we interviewed successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Now for your host, Kyle Grieve. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Grieve, and today we bring JL Collins onto the show. JL, welcome to the show. Hey, Kyle, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for uh, the invitation. So I recently finished your book, Pathfinders, Extraordinary Stories of People Like You on the Quest for Financial Independence and How to Join Them. I really enjoyed reading the stories you put in this book, and I'll be referring to a few of them throughout this interview. But to start off, let's discuss the foreword to your book. Hassan Minaj is not the prototypical person you'd think of when it comes to financial independence, but he did a wonderful job writing the foreword and telling the readers the core essence of the book. Can you share how you two became friends and why you chose him to write the foreword to Pathfinders? Yeah, so I, I mean, you characterize him well. He, he's a, uh, a wonderful comedian and, and a great commentator on our life. If you've ever seen him uh, perform live, it's amazing. I, um, I had the privilege to see him and also to hang out with him backstage afterwards. And I said to him at the time, with absolute sincerity, I don't think I've ever seen anyone or very rarely do anything with as much mastery as he commands his work in the stage and, and his audience absolutely loves him for it with good reason. But we got to know each other I want to say last spring, if my timing's correct, I didn't know much about him. I knew who he was, and I'd seen some clips of, of his work, and I, and I like those. 
Uh, last spring, he was guest hosting The Daily Show for a week, and one of his guests was uh, Kevin O'Leary, and he was giving uh, Mr. O'Leary uh, kind of a hard time. And, and at one point in that interview, uh, O'Leary kind of got his back up, and he said something like, so you're saying that when I go into schools, I shouldn't uh, tell them about uh, money and investing and what have you. And Hassan says, oh, no, absolutely, you should. And you should tell them to read The Simple Path to Wealth by J.L. Collins and not listen to anything else you say. And I wasn't watching that program at the time. But of course, that led my social media up like crazy. And, and so I saw the clip and it was kind of amazing and you know, very flattering, obviously. So I tried to figure out how to reach out to him to thank him. And he had just stepped off of Twitter. So my first thought was, okay, I'll, I'll tweet at him. And and but he had like the week before, you know, stepped away from Twitter. So I reached out to my audience and said, hey, if any of you know how to reach this guy, please let me know, because I'd, I'd like to thank him. And somebody did. They responded and said, you know, I, I this is the woman who used to be his uh, PR agent a uh, number of years ago. Don't know if she still is, but here's her contact information. So I sent her a note explaining what I was after and you know, a week goes by, I didn't hear anything. And I thought, okay, that was a dead end. And maybe there's no way to reach this guy. And then out of the blue, I got a wonderful email from Hassan himself. And it turns out he's a big fan of my work. And so that was the beginning of, of a beautiful friendship. And as I was thinking about who to have write the forward for Pathfinders, and this was developing, I thought, this guy is perfect because as I had a couple of conversations with him, I realized that he really does know his financial stuff. He really has read my work and, and is embracing it in his own life. And uh, so I proposed it to him. And to his great credit, he didn't immediately say yes. And the reason was he, before he agreed, he wanted to get to know me better. He wanted to make absolutely sure that I wasn't some charlatan, that there wasn't something that he'd missed in, in what he'd read in my, in my work and the conversations we'd had. So we had two Skype conversations that were probably two hours long each, where he absolutely grilled me on all this financial stuff. I think part of it was, you know, he, was, he had kind of a private session to, to sort of clarify his own thinking on it. And I was also impressed with the caliber of questions he was asking. But uh, so that was that sort of cemented the friendship. And obviously, he agreed to do the forward. And I, I think he knocked it out of the park. I mean, I think it's brilliant. And part of that is he in the forward, he calls me a savage. So how can you not love that? So let's discuss what financial independence means to you. As you outlined in Pathfinders, financial independence doesn't mean you also need to retire early but it gives you so much optionality to do whatever you want. So my question for you is, what's the biggest benefit for you in being financially independent? Well, you kind of expressed it in the, in the way you framed the question. Uh, you know, for me, I love the acronym FIRE because it's clever, you know, uh, financial independence, retire early. But for me, it was never about retirement. I mean, I, I liked working. I just liked to have what I call FU money that allowed me to, to work on my own terms. And so throughout my corporate career back in the day, I would take periodic uh, sabbaticals uh, because I could afford to. And so that's what it meant to me. And it's that optionality that you were talking about. 
I've had conversations with people who've achieved financial independence and they'll say things to me like, but I don't want to have to quit my job. I like it. And my answer is, well, you know, the point is you don't have to do anything anymore related about money. You can do whatever you want. I mean, if you like your job, then by all means, quit doing your job. That's kind of what I did. By the same token, by the way, occasionally I'll get people who will say, you know, I'm, I'm in this soul-crushing job. And when I'm running the numbers, I could retire if I could pull 5% against my portfolio. But of course, the 4% rule says you should only pull 4%. So am I stuck? And, you know, my attitude towards that is, you know, if you're in a soul-crushing job, if you look at the Trinity study, 5% works a pretty high percentage of the time. I would certainly pull the trigger and step away from that soul-crushing job. You're going to want to pay attention, obviously. If the market turns against you, you're going to want to have to either pull back your spending or go back to work or figure something else out. But so there's a lot of flexibility, even as you get closer to that, that line of becoming uh, financially independent. And that's that stage that I refer to as having FU money, which is the accumulation of money that allows you to make bolder choices before you are fully financially independent uh, based on that 4% guideline. So I know you get some pushback from skeptics saying that financial independence is only for the rich or people with high incomes. But you did a great job highlighting examples of like a migrant farmer or even someone in Ukraine right now who is well on their way to financial independence despite not having paying jobs or coming for money. So it's clearly possible. The key, as you pointed out, is that we all must make choices with our money that determine our savings rate and our lifestyle. So for people who aren't currently in a situation to save as part of their income, where do you suggest people get started on the path to financial independence? You just put your finger on the thing I love most about Pathfinders because you can't read this book. And I mean, if you read this book, you will never again be able to look in the mirror and honestly say to yourself, this can't be done because there are about 100 stories in the book and they range from all different parts of the world and all different walks of life, but many of them are from people who started with major challenges from very humble beginnings who are doing it. So you can look in the mirror and say, I choose not to do it. But And the thing I love about that is one of the pushbacks against the pursuit of financial independence has always been, well, that sounds great for that elite, high-income engineers, you know, those, those kinds of people, but it's not really applicable to us normal folks. And that was never my experience. You know, when I started writing the blog in 2011 and I started to meet people in this financial community, it was not a community of those elites. I, I just, that was not my experience of it. And so it always kind of baffled me that that was the perception of it. And Pathfinders really brings to life the fact that, that it's, it's a much more diverse kind of community. So that's long preamble to answer your question, where does somebody start? You know, you, you have to organize your life in order to free up capital to either pay down your debt if you have debt, because that's job one if you do, and then once that debt is gone or if you don't have it, you're freeing up that capital to invest because that's how you spend your money to buy your freedom. So you mentioned in your question, you know, we all have a, a limited amount of money, the vast majority of us, and we all get to choose how we spend that money. And there's almost a limitless range of things you can spend it on. 
for me, the most valuable thing that I could possibly think of to spend my money on was buying my freedom. And you buy your freedom by buying investable assets. I think most people don't even realize that's an option, that that's a way they could spend their money. And so instead, they spend their money on all kinds of different things. And, you know, that's fine as your money you can spend on whatever you want. But at least if you read Pathfinders and or The Simple Path to Wealth, you will know that one of the options that you could spend your money on is, is buying your freedom. So I really liked how you, uh, you had a story in Pathfinders that one of your Tatakwas where it's carrying on exactly what you were just saying that uh, one of your guests had said that the idea of saving just feels like deprivation. You came up and said that you spend all of your money, it's all, but it all goes into, uh, into your savings rather than buying you know, trinkets. And I really like the way you reframe that because you know, it's not something that I don't think most people think that way. And that's why they think, they think it's so hard to save. But what are, I mean, I'm interested in knowing some other common complaints that you've observed about specifically saving and how you reframe the problem to help them overcome them. Well, I don't, you know, I, I think most of the people that I interact with have made the decision at this point that, that yes, this is something that they want to spend their money on. The story you were referring to was really, in my conversation with her, really also altered my way of thinking about it. Because I always, uh, thought the way I think most people do that, you know, the money that I was saving investing was money that I wasn't spending. And if you think about it in those terms, then it, it has a tendency to begin to feel like deprivation. And that's the way she was seeing it. And that's the way she felt about it, right? It just felt that if she didn't go out and didn't get to spend her money on clothes or purses or dinners out, or it was you know, the money she was saving was, was depriving her of, of spending that and being able to spend that money. And that's when that little epiphany hit me that, well, no, it's just another way of spending your money. And I think, I do think that's a very useful framework because when you realize, as I said a moment ago, that you're always making decisions about how you spend your money, and you realize that spending it on investments, buying your freedom is just one more of those, then I think you can make the choice in a more rational way. So you think about it this way. If you're, you're looking to buy a car and you say, wow, I could, I could buy a Cadillac and then I could be driving around in this fancy car and people will look at me and admire me and life will be good. Or I could buy a Chevrolet. And probably nobody's going to be all impressed that I'm driving around a Chevrolet, but it'll still work and get me where I need to go. And if I buy the Chevrolet instead of the Cadillac, I'm going to have a whole bunch of money left over that I can spend on other things. So I think that's kind of a thought process that people go through on a pretty regular basis. And so if you think about it that way and you just put into the mix the idea that in addition to Chevrolets and Cadillacs and wardrobes, one of the things you could buy is your freedom, then maybe that helps. So you had a very simple investing framework that you recommend to anyone looking for financial independence, which is to save a large percentage of your income and put it away into a low cost index fund like VTSAX. But many people mess it up because they try to overcomplicate things. What are some of the most common mistakes you see with people who have their savings dialed in, but aren't doing so hot on the investing side of things? So one of the things I've come to realize since I started the blog in 2011 is I, you know, I write this stuff for my daughter and 
my daughter's not interested in financial things, right? But she's smart and she knows that it's important. So she wants to know enough to get it right. She can put it on autopilot. And she appreciates that if you get money right, your life becomes so much better, so much easier. There's so many more options that open up to you if you get money right. So she wants that, as I would think most people would want that. But as she said to me once when she came home from college, she said, Dad, I understand that it's important. I just don't want to have to think about it all the time. And that was an epiphany for me, right? So that's who I'm writing for. And that's the, the simple path is laid out for that kind of person. The nice thing about it is not only is the simple path simple for people who really don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about it, but it is also the most powerful way you can invest. Now, I've come to realize that I do have a large portion of my audience that fits that profile, but it's a financial blog and I write financial books. And so not surprisingly, I, I attract readers that are really into financial stuff, kind of like I am, like I presume you are. And of course, those people are the ones who are always saying, you know, JL, the simple path to wealth is great and it's foundation. But if you just tinkered with it this way, you could get a better result. Or if you tinkered with it this other way, or, you know, and people are going to tinker, I guess, regardless of anything that I say, but I'd be willing to bet that my daughter, who's not going to tinker with it because she's not interested, over the course of 20, 30 years is going to come out far ahead from those people who tinker with it, regardless of how they choose to tinker. Because investing is one of the very few things that if you get a couple basic things right, the less you tinker with it, the better you will do. And that's very counterintuitive because in every other aspect of our life, the harder you work at it, the better you get, right? The more podcasts you do, the more skilled a podcaster you are. That's not necessarily true with investing. And that's hard to wrap our, our, our heads around. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's interesting because, um, like you said, you know, there, there just, there aren't that many pursuits like investing where doing as little as possible gives you the best possible results. You know, if you are a, a surgeon, you know, and you're doing surgery, you can't just not do anything and succeed. It makes no sense. Right. You're always learning. You're always, there are always new techniques you have to absorb. Yeah, absolutely. But investing, that's the beauty of the simple path. If you understand a few basic principles and you understand the couple of tools that is the things that you need to invest in, and then you implement that and put it on autopilot with automatic investing and that kind of thing, and you're done. You know, at that point, don't do as, as Jack Bogle, uh, the guy who created index funds and the founder of Vanguard once famously said, don't just do something, stand there. I love that Jack Bogle quote. So you mentioned VTSAX very often as your favorite index fund. So I'm interested in knowing why, why do you think this is the best index out there for investors who are in search of financial independence? VTSAX is a, an index fund that invests in the total stock market. And, you know, there are index funds these days that invest in almost anything you can imagine. So when I talk about index funds, I'm talking about low-cost, broad-based stock index funds and sometimes bond index funds. And I prefer a total stock market index fund. An S&P 500 index fund is just as good. So frequently people who are looking at their 401k, for instance, will say things like, you know, I can't find VTSAX or a total stock market index fund. 
but there is an S&P 500 index fund. Is that okay? And I mean, it's perfect. The truth is that because index funds invest in a cap-weighted fashion, which means that the bigger the company, the bigger percentage of the index it represents, you know, the S&P 500 is, I want to say, 80 plus percent of, of VTSAX inherently. So the two are very, very similar. But I like the little extra, it's like adding Tabasco to your food, right? The little extra spice of mid-cap and small-cap companies. So that's why I prefer it. I personally invest in VTSAX and, I, and my daughter does now too, because that's Vanguard's total stock market index fund. Now, to be clear, a total stock market index fund or an S&P index fund is the same regardless of what investment company you buy it from. So if you prefer Fidelity for some reason and you want to buy their total stock market index fund, I can't think of the ticker for that offhand. That's fine. I get that question all the time. Same thing with the S&P or T. Rowe Price or Swab or whatever. I prefer Vanguard because they're the OGs. They are the ones that created indexing. It's in their DNA. And Vanguard is the only investment company out there that is structured so that its interests and the interests of its investors are perfectly aligned. We can go into detail about that, why that is if you want. But So that's why I prefer Vanguard. And because I prefer Vanguard, I, I'm in VTSAX. So yeah, you just mentioned the alignment of incentives. So can you please uh, go over that in some more detail for me in the audience? When Bogle was creating Vanguard, uh, he set it up so that the people who invest in the funds are actually the owners of Vanguard. So if you draw a contrast with in any other investment company, you look at Fidelity, for instance, which is a privately held company. Well, the owners of Fidelity are the individuals, mainly the Johnson family, who own that company, right? And the investors are their customers. Uh, if T. Rowe Price is a publicly traded company, so the owners of T. Rowe Price are the shareholders. And again, the investors are their, their customers. So those companies have two masters to serve. They certainly want to do a good job for their investors, so their investors keep coming back to them and stay invested with them. But primarily, they want to drive profits into the hands of their owners. Okay, now that's, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's the way most businesses are organized. You look at Apple Computer, well, that's exactly the same thing, right? Apple's a publicly traded company. Apple is, has to serve two masters, its owners, the shareholders, which, by the way, if you own BTSEX, you're owning Apple, so I'm in favor of that. And of course, they want to they serve their customers, so they want to deliver the best products they can at competitive prices to their customers, so their customers keep buying. But they do have to serve two masters. Bogle's brilliance was that the customer base, the investor, and the owners become one and the same. So Vanguard has no incentive to increase expenses and therefore profits for the owners because that's just taking it out of one of their the owner's pockets and putting it in another in a taxable way, which is not ideal. And by the way, this is one of the reasons that Jack Bogle, when he passed away, was not a multi-billionaire. He was worth maybe $300 million, which is a lot. 
But when you consider the magnitude of what he built, it's a fraction of what he could have done if he'd organized this company in a less advantageous way for us investors. So I, that's one of the many reasons that I prefer Vanguard. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. I want to look under the hood of index funds in general and pretend someone uh, can't buy VTSAX for whatever reason. I mean, you mentioned 401k. I'm in Canada, so um, I would have to buy a different ticker symbol. But let's say that they just don't have access to it at all. What exactly should they be looking for in an index fund to help compound their wealth? As I say, index funds are. When Bogle first created them, the first one he created was an index 500, S&P 500 uh, index fund. Well, now you can get an index fund that tracks almost anything. You can get a, an index fund that buys gold-related companies or tech or, you know, it's... And I, I don't... I'm not in favor of, of any of those. So when I talk about index funds, as I think I said a little bit earlier... I'm talking about broad-based, which means going across a broad range of stocks, S&P 500, total stock market, broad-based and low cost. Because, of course, 
the lowest cost ones are in fact the broad-based ones and cost matters again as, as bogle once said performance comes and goes but costs are forever so that's what you're looking for and i mentioned the ones that are available in the in the us because i'm an american there are equivalents in a lot of markets so a lot of markets your your other world markets you're able to buy things like vtsax or S&P 500, but not always, but they tend to have something along those lines. And you can most easily identify it because it will probably be called an index fund of some sort. But the key thing is to look for the absolute lowest costs. So to put a number on that, I want to say VTSAX at the moment is the ER expense ratio is 0.04, maybe even 0.03% now. So that's down to where, where you want to be. That's what you're, what you're kind of looking for. Yeah. It's funny. I, I remember when I was uh, like literally just a kid and my mom kind of instilled in me to save for RSPs. And so I saved my, so a little bit of money each month for RSP. And then I would put it into, it was always a bank mutual fund. I had no idea about anything that I know now. I wish I had, cause I'd have a lot more money. And then you, you look at the, the expense ratio and it would be in the tiniest, tiniest writing at the very bottom. And it'd be like, you know, 1.4%. And you'd be like, oh, well, you know, that's nothing. But once you break that down into how much money that can be over decades, it makes a huge difference. Like even just going from 1.4 to like you said, with the Vanguard funds of 0.04%. I mean, it's a huge difference. I mean, it's, it's stunning. And, and I, you know, as you say, and there are people who have done this who extrapolate out what that drag uh, means long term on your performance. And there are people who've done it better than I have. So I haven't, you know, I haven't duplicated that, but it's worth seeking out. But it's just, it's incredible. And any normal person is going to say, you know, 1.4%, that's nothing. I mean, that's cheap, but it's not. So maybe the, the easiest back pocket way to think about how enormous that really is, is if you think about the, what's called the 4% rule, right? So the 4% rule suggests that you can take any given portfolio and you can pull 4% a year out to live on, and you can expect that portfolio to have a very good chance of lasting for 30 plus years, right? So you get to spend 4%. Well, now, suddenly, if you think about that expense ratio of, of 1.4%, you know, now suddenly you realize that over 25% of your annual income is going to pay that expense ratio. So instead of having 4% to live on, you're now living on 2.6%. Well, that's a big difference. If you look at it in that fashion, you know, if you're pulling $10,000 a year, what does that come to? Anyway, I'm, I'm confusing myself with the math. But, but yeah, you're not, uh, it's a big, big deal. And of course, 1.4 doesn't sound like a lot, but anybody who looks at it and compares it to a 0 0.04, you know, you realize, well, it's far, far, it's a huge multiple more than what you should be paying. Well, I really enjoyed your views on dollar cost averaging concerning investing a lump sum of money. So the basics are that the market goes up approximately 77% of the time. So if you have cash waiting on the sidelines to attempt to time the market and buy when it comes down, the odds that you'll get more money in at a cheaper price are only 23%. 
So since this is the Millennial Investing Podcast and many of my listeners are millennials, they will probably be in the wealth building phase that you outline. So I think the audience would get a lot from learning specifically what you would tell a millennial today who is looking to invest to one day become financially independent. Well, so first of all, I I would tell them the same thing that I was writing for my daughter in, in The Simple Path to Wealth, which published in 2016. And that's investing in the broad-based index funds. In terms of dollar cost averaging, you you described it pretty well. I do make the distinction that I'm talking about if you come into possession of a lump sum that you want to invest, right? Then that's when you have to make the decision about dollar cost averaging. And as you described accurately, I'm not a fan because the odds favor lump sum investing in terms of getting a good result. If you dollar cost average, you're only going to come out ahead if over whatever period of time you've chosen to dollar cost average, the market actually goes down and you get to buy those shares at lower prices. If it stays flat, you've just delayed putting your money to work. And of course, if it goes up, then you are spending more for those shares each time you buy them. But there is a form of dollar cost averaging that I'm very much in favor of, and it's the one you can't avoid. And that's if, if you are, as you should be, taking a portion of your earned income every week, every month, whatever it is, and you are buying your investments with it. Well, now by definition, you are dollar cost averaging. You don't have the option of putting a lump sum in because you, you can only invest as the, as the cash flow comes to you. And that's a very powerful thing because then you really not only don't have to worry about the periodic drops in the market, and the market's a very volatile thing, but they work to your advantage because whenever the market takes a plunge, which it does on a regular basis, perfectly normal part of the process, well, that money you're putting in every month is buying more shares. You're getting them on sale. So that's a form of dollar cost averaging you can't get away from, and that's how it works to your advantage. But now you're talking about something you're going to be doing over decades. So my advice to millennials is, is get started because time, you know, you're young and time is your friend when you're an investor. Uh, you know, the longer you're in the market, the better the results. In your opinion, I think I'm probably going to know the answer to this, but is there any situation where keeping some cash on the sidelines to deploy into a cheap market is a good strategy or is that just overcomplicating things? Yeah, I think that's overcomplicating things. I think that the time to invest is when you have money to invest. The only time I would accumulate cash is if you are planning to spend it in the near future. So for instance, maybe you want to buy a house and you're saving for the down payment on that house and you're thinking it's going to take me five years to save the down payment. Well, then that should probably be in in cash because the market is volatile. And when the time comes, if it happens to be in one of its swoons, you don't want to have to be selling your shares in VTSAX for your down payment. Now, if you're a little more of a gambler and you're willing to accept the risk that at the end of five years, it might be a market slump and you might have to delay buying that house, then you'll probably get a better return keeping your money in the market or some portion of it. But now you're kind of, you know, you're kind of playing the odds and it depends on how flexible you are about buying the house. You know, if you do that, maybe you wind up buying the house in four years instead of five, or maybe it takes you seven years instead of five, right? 
So the unfortunate reality is the popularity of paying other people to manage money for you. In my immediate family, almost everybody is paying someone else to do it. And even when I break down how much fees you know, my mom or dad are paying, they just keep doing it. So how do you like to simplify the pitfalls of investment advisors to people who are using them? You know, Wall Street is intentionally, I think, made investing feel very complicated. And the truth is there are most of the products sold by Wall Street are indeed very, very complicated. You know, in the collapse of 08, 09, you know, famously, they created products that they themselves didn't understand. So when people think, man, I, I need to get professional help because this is just too complicated for me, a normal person to, to understand. Well, they're thinking rationally. But what I would like them to understand is all those complicated things that they hear about on TV and maybe they read about in the newspaper, you don't need any of those things. You can put your arm on the table and sweep all that on the floor. All you need are these very simple, low-cost, broad-based index funds, and you will outperform all those other things, and your life will be a lot simpler. And you certainly don't need a professional to put you into those. In fact, professionals will tend not to precisely because they're low, low cost and there's not the commissions and fees to be available to that advisor for those things unless you're using an advisor who is fee only where you're paying them by the hour then that's the only time you're going to get somebody who's going to recommend something like an index fund advisors inherently what's good for the advisor is not often the same thing that's good for the investor and so there's an inherent conflict of interest. And that requires an advisor to put the needs of his clients ahead of his own. And that's a very difficult thing for humans to do. Because if that advisor, you know, wants to buy a boat or has a child who's about to go to college or, you know, it's, it's a very human thing to say, well, you know, my needs are going to come first. And that's not what they're consciously saying, of course. They're, they're saying, well, this high fee investment is still a pretty good investment. So I'm still doing a good thing for my. So nobody's going to care about your money more than you do. And I have a, there's a chapter in the Simple Path to Wealth about this. There's a post in my stock series about this. You know, if you need help with your tax returns, then hire a, a tax accountant. I have one. If you need specific kinds of help, but in terms of investing, by the time you know enough to pick an advisor that who will truly serve your needs, you know enough to do it on your own because it's just not that simple. So at the risk of sounding self-serving, I would say before you hire an advisor, read The Simple Path to Wealth and Pathfinders. And then if you read those and you say, no, I still don't want to deal with this, well, okay, maybe. And even if you, if you have an advisor and you're thinking about it, uh, the last thing I'll say about this is, you know, when you talk to people who are using an advisor, almost inevitably, at least in my experience, what they'll say is, well, yeah, maybe, but, you know, old Charlie's a friend or old Charlie was, he was, he manages my parents' money and, you know, he's a family friend and, you know, I, how do I leave old Charlie? I've heard this so much, I've come to think that, you know, the real skill of investment advisors isn't financial. It's in becoming or pretending to be somebody's friend. And the last thing in my cynical frame of mind that I will share on that is I've yet to have anybody who 
made the decision to step away from their advisor, report back and say, you know, old Charlie, he's still my friend. Because, you know, the moment you tell your advisor that you're going to handle it on yourself, then you're going to find out how deep that friendship is from old Charlie's point of view. It's funny. The, the, the other thing, too, I would also add is just that most of these funds, you know, their overall performance is essentially whatever the market gets anyways. But then on top of that, you're paying more and more fees. So because of that, yeah, I literally underperform the market. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to invest <laughs> with, uh, with an advisor. It really doesn't. Now, to be clear, there are times when advisors can be useful giving advice, and there are, in fairness, good advisors out there if you feel the need. My advice would be seek one that charges on an hourly basis a fee-based advisor because then there's not the inherent conflict of interest. So let's, let's just let's think about one potential conflict of interest with, with even a, you know, an honest advisor, but one who's working on a fee. You know, let's suppose you go to them and you say, you know, I'm thinking about paying off my mortgage. I'm thinking about you know, maybe taking some of the money I've invested and selling those shares and, and paying off my mortgage. What do you think? Well, from the advisor's point of view, if you do, let's say your mortgage is half a million dollars. Well, if you do that, that's half a million dollars that is no longer going to be managed by that advisor. And so if that advisor is charging you 1% a year to manage that money, well, that 1% a year, which is what, $5,000, is going to go out the door. So for that advisor to recommend that you pay off your mortgage is going to cost him $5,000. Well, that's the kind of conflict of interest. Now, you'd like to think your advisor would look at the interest rate you're paying on the mortgage, look at the investments you're in and what your goals are and all that thing and, and advise you in that fashion. Hopefully they do. But I got to imagine for most advisors who've got a kid coming up to college or a boat payment or whatever, that loss of income is going to be somewhere in the back of their mind as well. So you're asking a lot from an advisor. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. 
This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. So you list 18 aspects of what the worst possible investment would look like in a great article on your site. Coincidentally, real estate ticks nearly all of the boxes that you list. (laughs) And I've come to the same conclusion that you do many years ago myself. My reasoning was quite simple. The opportunity cost of having a mortgage is way too high when you can rent and invest the same amount of capital. The difference is that your investment will be worth a lot more than your house in a few decades. So do you think the reason most parents try to tell their kids home ownership is so important is more of a generational thing? I think it probably is. Uh, you know, I, I think there is, you know, home ownership is sort of the American religion. And I, it's, from what I understand, it's probably even, if anything, more the Canadian religion. You guys seem to really be into home ownership. And you look back at my parents' generation who went through the, the Depression which of course was not a good time for financial assets. And home ownership just felt more stable to a lot of people. And if you're not a saver, an investor, if you're prone to spend every dime that comes your way on other things, well, then at least if you have a house, it's kind of a forced savings plan, so to speak. That's the way it worked for my parents. But it's not optimal. And uh, I think the post you're referring to is why your house is a terrible investment. And my basic premise is that houses are not good investments for a lot of reasons. It doesn't mean you should never own a house. I own a house. I've, I've owned houses most of my adult life, but I didn't own them thinking they were investments. You know, I owned them because I could easily afford them. And they provided a lifestyle that I wanted. So I I think of houses as being expensive indulgences. Now, of course, there's a huge real estate industry out there that is motivated to convince people that houses are great investments. And that's a drumbeat that you hear all the time. And then, of course, there are all the stories you hear about somebody who bought, you know, 30 years in San Francisco and, you know, they paid $100,000 $100,000 and now it's worth 10 million or whatever. And those things I'm sure do exist. You don't hear the stories about somebody who bought in Detroit and saw their investment get absolutely trashed. 
Now, it's important to recognize, and people will say, well, you know, obviously you shouldn't buy in Detroit. You should only buy in San Francisco. Well, what I understand, San Francisco is having a lot of social problems at the moment. And I've been to Detroit recently, and Detroit's beginning to enjoy a renaissance. So who's to say 10 years from now, you know, the people who are pro-houses are going to say, well, of course you don't want to buy in San Francisco. Everybody could tell that was about to go downhill. You wanted to buy in Detroit, which was, and by the way, I'm not predicting that necessarily, but Detroit of yesterday might be the San Francisco of tomorrow, and the San Francisco of tomorrow might be the Detroit of yesterday. You don't necessarily know, and you are making a huge bet on a very specific location. If you want to live in San Francisco and you can afford a house and you see it as expensive indulgence, by all means. If you want to live in Detroit, the same thing. Personally, I think I'd be a little more comfortable investing in Detroit at this point in a house because, you know, it's, I think, at the beginning rather than teetering at the top. So you brought a really good point up there just about how uh, us Canadians love, love the housing market. And I live in Vancouver where it's probably it's one of the worst, there. one of the worst situations. Yeah. So actually, I know a couple people in Vancouver who have bought houses as an investment, but I've looked into it just running, you know, back of the envelope math and the return is it makes, you know, short, it makes long-term bonds look really attractive. Let's put it that way. I think it depends where you're from and like what you're saying, completely rational. And I agree, but let's say you were talking to someone in Vancouver's market who was looking to deploy some money either for, for an investment purposes. And, you know, they saw that their parents house, you know, they bought it in the eighties for 200 grand and now it's worth 2 million. So outside of the risks that you just talked about with, you know, not knowing exactly what's going to happen in the future, what are some other risks uh, that are inherent in property that people should know about? If you invest, if you buy a house, I think you would be hard pressed to find anybody who buys a house and doesn't begin to renovate it or fix it up in some fashion, right? So when you, you, you what people lose sight of, is, and a lot of people say this to me all the time, my mortgage is the same as my rent. And so why not buy? Well, okay, I'll take your word for that. But, you know, now you're also paying real estate taxes. Are you going to remodel your kitchen? Are you going to replace the carpeting? Are you going to, does it need a new roof? You know, houses, both optional things that homeowners choose to do, because one of the reasons people say, oh, I want to have a house because I want to make it mine. Well, that's great. That's part of the expensive indulgence thing, right? I understand that. But the moment you start putting money into that house to make it yours, now it's a whole lot less expensive. Nobody rents an apartment and says, gee, I'm going to remodel the kitchen. Right? So inherently, the apartment is going to be less expensive over time. Again, this is lifestyle decisions, which are fine when you own a house. I've, I've done it myself. I've remodeled houses. And so that's great. But it's not a good way to invest your money. It's, it can be, depending on what your desires are, a good way to, to indulge yourself with your money. But you know that's a different kind of thing. So if you own a house, you're always going to be spending money to maintain it. You're always going to be wanting to spend money to make it more yours and improve it, which by the way, you know, that fancy new kitchen you put in when you want to sell that house 10 years from now might not be in fashion anymore, or your taste might not be the taste of the buyers. So they might be looking at that kitchen you spent 50 grand on and saying, yeah, this is a nice house, but I got to rip that kitchen out, you know? So there's all kinds of things to... A building is always doing its best to return to dust. 
And if you own it, you know, you have to expend a lot of energy and money preventing that from happening. It's funny because kind of bringing it back into the comparing it, for instance, with an index fund, right? I mean, it's essentially basically like, you know, you can buy a house you can, or buy an index fund. Let's just say you can buy those two, but the house is going to have a massive expense ratio because like you said, you know, you're not just paying rent as your mortgage. There's tons and tons of expenses. And, it, and even if you don't want to upgrade it, stuff happens, right? You get floods, um, your roof collapses, you know, your toilet starts, stops working. I mean, you know, it's not like, it's not like, oh, I'm going to gamble and nothing's going to happen. I'm not going to put a dime into the house. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not how it works here. You're, you're going to be spending money. You know, on, on that post you referred to uh, that I have on, on why your house is a terrible investment there, and that's the post that's gotten me the most hate. It's also gotten me the most love and it's, it's generated the most comments. And one of those comments buried in there, you know, I, I don't look at the comments anymore because, you know, it's been a while, but when it was first out, I paid more attention. And one of the comments came from a guy who was, you know, arguing the point that the houses were great. And he, he said, you know, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I've owned my house for 30 years and I've, I've never spent any money on, on it. And I'm thinking, okay, I'll take your word for it, but I can't imagine what kind of condition your house is in if you've really spent 30 years and done no maintenance, no improvements, you know, it's whatever. But so I think people are a little delusional. I think if you really sat down with that guy and said, well, okay, you know, what do you mean you haven't done anything? Well, of course, I had to replace the roof back in, you know, in 08. And, you know, okay. I think people tend to forget. But if you really spent, if you had a house for 30 years and you genuinely spent no money on maintaining it, then good luck with your resale. So you wrote a wonderful passage about when your daughter was eight and you guys were watching the news together on TV. I think it was about the depression era. And you mentioned that you hadn't been working for the past year or so by choice. And she asked you, quote, daddy, are we poor? Unquote. And you reassured, you reassured her everything was okay, but under the surface, you were thanking the FU money, which you referenced her a little earlier, that you would work so hard to save up for in situations exactly like this one. You kind of defined what FU money already is, but I was wondering if, I know you've utilized it that, that one time that you referred to when you were with your daughter, but is it something that you, you've used multiple times and I would just be interested in knowing how, how you've used it in the past? Yeah, so that particular story comes from, I want to say, 2002. So this was in the aftermath of the uh, tech collapse. At the end of the, the, there was the tech boom in the 90s. And then, of course, it collapsed, one of the worst collapses we've had. And then, of course, there was 9-11, uh, the attack on the, on the World Trade Centers. And that just drove the economy into a, a tailspin. And at the time, my career was spent in the business to business publishing, and I was a group publisher of, of some tech magazines for the company I was working for. And of course, because they were tech magazines, our business fell off the cliff. And I worked for the advanced technology division of that company, and the whole division just went from posting a record year to just plunging. We all lost our jobs. So I was kicked to the curb, and my daughter and I were, she knew I wasn't working and I'd been out of work probably for a year or something at that point. And we're watching, and these were hard economic times in general. And the news had this story of other people who'd lost their jobs and they were standing in basically a bread line, right? And that's when she asked me, Daddy, are we poor? And it was, it gave me a great idea. I said, no, sweetie. And she said, well, you don't have, you know, like, 
those people on TV don't have a job and you don't have a job. And so how come we're not poor? And I said, well, we have money that's working for us, which of course is the whole idea, right? So that was, that was the, I've stepped away from a lot of jobs in, in my career. That was the one time when it, it wasn't my choice, you know, and I got kicked to the curb, but I loved working. And I, and when I was working, I worked pretty intently, which sounds good and sounds like a humble brag, but the downside of it is, is that you burn yourself out and it's, you can't, at least I can't do it consistently. So I, I would have to step away periodically to recharge my batteries and, so I would take sabbaticals that having this FU money allowed me to pay my bills. And also most often I'd travel during those sabbaticals and that's, and that's how I used it. And it wasn't enough money that I never had to work again, but it was enough money that I didn't have to worry about paying the rent or the mortgage in the immediate future. And I, and I could afford to, to do other things. That's how I used it. And it was very powerful to have. And that's one of the things I tell people is, you know, it can be intimidating if you're starting at ground zero and you're thinking, wow, how do I get to a million dollars? Let's say that that just seems like a long journey and it can be, but you have to understand it's not an on off switch. It's not like one day you have, you have nothing. And then the next day you have a million dollars along the way, you keep building what I call your FU money. And the moment you start on the path, the moment you start saving and investing, you, you're a little bit stronger. And then you're a little bit stronger and a little bit stronger and all until finally you're fully FI. But that strength allows you to make bolder decisions long before you are fully financially independent. So I have one quick question about FU money. And do you delineate between you know, your general pot of savings and FU money? Like for instance, I know you, you, you referenced earlier, if you had an expense coming up, you might just put that in cash rather than keeping it in, uh, in an index fund. But um, yeah, I'm just interesting. Do you delineate between the two or is it kind of just, you know, FU money is kind of just like a subset of your general savings? I know I don't delineate. So for me, to be clear, for a lot of people, FU money is the equivalent of being financially independent. And I'm not the authority on defining what it is, but just for me, I choose to see FU money is that the money that you are steadily building in the interim from start to full financial independence. So for me, it's the entire amount of money that I have because, you know, if let's say you've decided you need to have a million dollars to retire and at some point you're at a hundred thousand that's invested in different ways maybe some of it's in vtsax maybe some of it's in in a money market fund that totality is, is would be how i think of the fu money you have because that's money you can draw on if you need to to pay your expenses while you're stepping away from trading your labor for money I have a 15 month old son and I want to eventually teach him as well about lessons about, uh, you know, savings and, and compounding his money as well. And uh, thank you very much. And I know, like you mentioned that basically everything you've done with all this FI pretty much started with your daughter. So I'm interested in knowing what, what do you like to, uh, what would you tell parents about how to help teach their kids, you know, understand the, some of these concepts better. And, and also, I'm also interested in knowing at what age do you think it's appropriate to start uh, teaching them? Well, I, I am probably the, the exact wrong person to seek advice from on this subject. At the very end of Pathfinders, 
There's an interview with uh, that Christine Benz of Morningstar does with with my daughter and myself. And uh, so you get to hear from, and of course, Jessica is now a, a, an adult and she's on the path, but you get to hear from Jessica how she thinks about all this stuff. But I, you know, I pushed it way too hard, way too soon. And in the process, I managed to turn her off to all things investing. You know, I, in my defense, I did it because if you get money right, your life is so much better. You have so many more options. And if you get money wrong, your life is so much harder. You know, there's great irony. If you, if you get money right and you begin building your FU money and ultimately become financially independent, you really don't have to think about money all that much, especially if you're on the simple path to wealth because your investments are really simple and they're automated. If you don't get money right and you're spending every dime that comes to you on stuff and you're living paycheck to paycheck, well, then you're, you have to think about money all the time and in the most negative possible framework. So clearly, I didn't want that for my daughter. And clearly, I wanted all the options and freedom and the expansion of her life that understanding money correctly could provide. So that was why I pushed it so hard. I don't know what the balance is. It turned out okay because, you know, eventually, you know, she started paying attention. But she will say, as, as she does in the interview, she didn't really pay attention until she got to college and started seeing all the financial problems that people she was meeting had and the lack of understanding. And so then I think she, but my daughter loves to tease me. She says, uh, you know, dad, if I'd listened when I was young, uh, there'd be no blog, you know, there would be no Chautauqua, there would be no books, and Kyle wouldn't want to interview you. <laughs> so, and she's right. <laughs> so I owe it all to the little girl who wouldn't listen. So I noticed uh, you just mentioned the Chautauqua, and I know that uh, you're pondering not holding them anymore, but um, I'm interested in knowing what got you interested in holding them in the first place. So I run a, a mastermind community for TIP, and we recently did a book club on Robert Piercig Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which was the first time I'd ever seen that word Chautauqua. So I'm just interested, is that where you got the term or was there somewhere else? And I'd love to know more about that. You're the first person who's ever mentioned that book in this context and asked that question. And it is, in fact, and I hadn't even thought about this, but looking back on it, it was that book where I first came across the word. And I love the word. I mean, it's a Native American word. It means gathering to discuss ideas and concepts and all that kind of stuff. And it was just absolutely perfect for what I wanted to do. And it's just a wonderful word, which is, I think, why he used it in The Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. But I, uh, I started the blog in 2011. And by 2012, it suddenly was developing this audience that was interested in this stuff. And I thought, wow, it'd be kind of fun to go out and, and give talks about this. So I started looking around for a venue to do that. And at the time, there weren't any. Now, there are quite a few in the, in the community. But at the time, I couldn't find anything. And in the summer of, I want to say it was 2011, my wife and I had gone uh, to Ecuador because we'd never been and just hang out for the summer. And we really liked Ecuador. And when I came back, uh, I subscribed to a newsletter about Ecuador, and there was an ad one day in there for a retreat on happiness that this American woman was putting together, and she was living in Ecuador. 
So I reached out to her and I said, hey, you know, if you have money, it facilitates the pursuit of happiness. And, you know, if you ever want to add a financial aspect to the things you're doing, I'd, I'd love to talk to you about it. And, and she responded and said, well, we're not actually going to wind up doing this because nobody's signing up. And that started a conversation. And because of my background, I, you know, when I was listening to her, it became pretty clear to me why people weren't sh signing up and the solution to that became pretty clear. And so I flew back down to Ecuador to meet her to see if she was a real person and, and uh, got to know her a little bit. And uh, while I was there, we hammered out the outline of what became Chautauqua and then conducted the first one in 2013 in, in Ecuador. JL, I really appreciate you joining me today. But before we say goodbye, where can the audience connect with you and learn more about you? It's been my pleasure, and I've had a blast in our conversation, Kyle. Uh, probably the, the easiest thing is to start at the blog. It's jlcollinsnh.com. And then from there, you'll find links to Pathfinders and Simple Path to Wealth. And my, uh, my second book, which is How I Lost Money in Real Estate Before It Was Fashionable. And you'll find, you can find your way to my Twitter and Facebook if you want to hang out there. And, and uh, when you send me the link for this interview, I'll be putting it up on both those places and, and uh, on the blog. So yeah, that's, if anybody's interested, that's, that's probably how to go about it. Okay, folks, that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here very soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to follow Millennial Investing on your favorite podcast app and never miss out on our episodes. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.